almost every question comes back to strategic communication. I think um, we need more scholarship. I, I hope that we continue to see that. I think um, I went through the same thing. I started right off with the pen and paper. I said, I'm about to write this book. And at some point I said, I have to bring in the perspectives and voices of those who are actually doing the work, the practitioners who are engaged in this every day. And it wasn't so much to get additional credibility so much as it was to say, I didn't want to write something that didn't have the right placement of today's issues in today's times. And I think one extra way to, to ensure that that happens is to talk with people and share some of the stuff, stuff that you're working on. I know it's tempting to say, well, I'll just wait until my journal article is completely done and then it gets published and released. But that may take a couple of years. And at some point along the way, even when you're gathering your data, I think um, having some iterative times that you can actually connect with somebody who's actually more front facing with students will help us make our work a little bit more relevant and timely. So I know that that happens already. And I know that anybody listening to that would say, of course, Amelia, I do that. But I think there's never a, a bad time to continue doing that. So if you find yourself going months at a time. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. Welcome. Today, we're having an episode of Scholarship to Practice. And as an administrator, I don't know about you, but for me, I've been part of far too many conversations where I hear things like, if only we knew, or I wonder if, and later on, I find out that most of those topics, there's actually relevant research that we could have been drawing upon that already existed. Too often, limited time, capacity, or even academic writing can get in the way. At the UIA, we know that we need to bridge that gap between scholarship and practice if we're going to stand a chance to improve student success. We all need to be working together, leveraging research in the field and identifying where we need more research to support greater innovation in higher ed. So this show is designed to help bridge that gap by elevating relevant research we all could be using in our daily lives in a short and conversational format. Welcome to Scholarship to Practice. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today for a very special episode of Scholarship to Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Bridget Burns with the University Innovation Alliance. And I'm today's co-host, Dr. Tiffany Polite with the University Innovation Alliance. In each episode of Scholarship to Practice, we bring you a short conversation with scholars and practitioners whose insights and learning can enhance the work of student success practitioners day to day. So too often there's a disconnect between scholarship in the field and scholarship being surfaced and the work happening in the field. And so the goal of this show is to really surface um, and, and bridge that gap, but to surface insights from people who are conducting groundbreaking research, who are doing things that we think are really valuable for those who are implementing student success innovation on the ground. And we try and actually unpack their learnings and insights to support you. So that's why we call it scholarship to practice. Today, we are joined by Dr. Amelia Parnell, the Vice President for Research and Policy at NASPA. For those who don't know, that's the Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education Association. Uh, she's the author of a new book, You Are a Data Person, Strategies for Using Analytics on Campus and host of a new podcast, Speaking of College. So to start us off today, um, I would love, Dr. Parnell, if you could share with us what made you write the book and who should read it? 
Well, first off, thank you both for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Uh, data and anything that's related to it or higher education, probably some of my favorite topics. Um, I think, honestly, the book came along over time. So I can't say that there was one dedicated moment where I just knew that I was ready to write it. Uh, but actually, about three years ago to the date, um, I was in the lobby of the NASPA annual conference, uh, main hotel, and I was talking with David Brightman at Stylus. And I pretty much said I'd have a lot of conversations with professionals over the most recent and months before that, where people were saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm jazzed up about doing data work, but I'm not the best at it. And Bridget does our data uh, work or Tiffany does our analytics work. And so that phrase, I'm not a data person, kept ringing, you know, for me. And honestly, after having several years in the field, seeing data related conversations from a variety of perspectives, it just kind of motivated me to write something that would take a little bit of a different angle, something that really kind of took out of the details of the fine methodologies. We need that, but something that made it very practical and relatable. So I think the audience for the book, honestly, is anybody who works uh, in a higher education setting, but specifically those who work on a college campus. So that doesn't have to be limited to those who have formal roles like institutional research. It could also include faculty, student affairs, um, groundskeepers, anyone who works in dining services. Honestly, anybody who engages in the college environment, I think this book would be really useful to them. Well, it, I think it's definitely valuable. Like I can't imagine... Well, I think you and I probably have been in the same number of conversations where that's come up. It is really a consistent, persistent theme. I am curious about, though, like you sit in a very unique role at NASPA, but to decide to finally write the book, I think, you know, you said that you just decided to write it, but I'm, I'm very curious about your process to unpack the learnings that would be most valuable and like how you actually did the writing. Because the ways that people uh, misunderstand and make things way too complex relative to data and the, the intimidation factor. There's just so much to, to like chew on in that space. And so um, can you just share a little bit about your process as you were surfacing the things that really administrators needed kind mm -hmm. of this advice about? Oh, sure. And I think almost any topic in higher education, I'm probably going to tie it back to strategic communication. And so in terms of the writing process, early, earlier in my career, I spent about seven years working for the Florida legislature and in a role that was really, really close to what would be the equivalent of a data office for the legislature. And so on a daily basis, we would get requests from representatives and senators to run data analysis so that they could actually make decisions about types of legislation that they wanted. So naturally spending all that time with state level databases, but at some point needing to to convert that into tangible bullet points that representatives and senators would understand, it works a certain muscle that helps you understand that regardless of your role, you're going to have to make some decisions. And if that data that's used to make the decisions um, is clearly presented and easily explained, then you probably can get somewhere. So from there, I ended up working um, at the Association for Institutional Research, where I was mostly engaged with professionals on the campus who did that type of work. But what was missing is that they oftentimes would say they weren't invited into the decisions that were made. They were often just giving the data. And so that was a different angle. And then I got to NASPA and I started working with a lot of professionals who would say that they're executing the delivery of programs and services, but often being asked to prove with evidence what's working. So again, all of this kind of circles around the ability to communicate and translate what's going on. And so all three groups, and if you add in that some teaching experience that I have, I haven't found one person who works in higher education who is not concerned about doing the best work they can or showing with evidence that they've been able to do so. What usually happens though, is that these conversations oftentimes happen in silos and maybe the 
ability to translate across groups ends up getting uh, lost a little bit. And so my motivation for writing the book was to do something that brought a lot of perspective. So I did 40 interviews with professionals from a variety of roles across a lot of different types of campuses. And I just talked with them and I asked them to tell me about how they use data in their daily work. And so I used that to then create the data identity framework, which talks about six core competencies that I think we already have to some degree, but we should leverage them to, uh, with a greater level of sophistication to make our conversations more fluid. And so the, the process of writing was a little bit start and stop. I did some interviews and then I'd write some, then I wrote some and then I'd did some more interviews to kind of vet what I had been hearing. And so I knew it was done when I got to the place where every time I presented that six part framework and somebody knew, they said, OK, it makes sense. It all fits together. So it was an iterative process, but it definitely reflects my journey uh, along these conversations so far. Great. Thank you so much. So you talked just momentarily um, about the data identity framework. And I think that um, that's certainly one of the things that makes this book unique um, in the field. Could you talk to us a little bit more about how your book maybe shows up differently in the field um, and, and maybe from the perspective of kind of what is the consequence of not having this information, uh, perhaps for practitioners? Um, how, how can someone come to come across your book and say, you know what, this one is for me compared to maybe some of the other options that are out there. Yeah, well, I titled it uh, as such. So I said, you are a data person. So anybody who picks it up, that means the book is for you. So, but I intentionally did not call it, you are a data scientist. So I want to be realistic with this. We definitely still need a whole lot more literature and scholarship around methodologies and the, the practical uses of data in a way that really will keep us honest and, and able to do our work with, with fidelity. So I don't want to suggest that this book replaces those. Um, I think we also have a lot of theory-based uh, books, books that tell us about what the developmental stages of what students are experiencing should be described as. But this book is a little bit different because I think it makes it much more of a kind of um, blueprint for an individual who's saying, I know that I'm doing data related work, but I'd like to chart a course for myself. And I'd like to do that in a way that identifies what I'm good at first and then figuring out how you compare that with what someone else is good at. So the book and the data identity framework is designed to have a bit of an asset frame. And so I know in the beginning, in my first answer, I said, uh, well, I don't do that type of work. Bridget does this work or Tiffany does that work. It's easy to adopt those types of mindsets and maybe almost a little bit deficit thinking in the sense that I can't do it. I, I'm not able to do this. This is what I don't know. And people oftentimes confess how long it's been since they took a stats class. But this book is really intended to flip that type of mindset and say that we all have six core abilities and probably several more that frame a lot of how we engage. So one of them is curiosity and inquiry, which is basically the ability to ask uh, clear and formulate uh, clear questions. The next one is obviously research and analysis. So the ability to use various methodologies, um, communication and consultation. So the ability to translate things for a variety of audiences, campus context. So the, the fact that where you work makes a big difference in how you understand what's happening in the flow of activities and operations of the institution. Um, industry context. So your general knowledge of higher education as an enterprise and what's happening. And then lastly, strategy and planning. So the ability to put all of that stuff together in a course of action. And I, honestly, I'm looking at any position, any job description. We already do a lot of those things uh, on our daily uh, jobs. And so putting those together in a frame that kind of weaves through throughout how you might have a data identity in each of those settings is, I think, a practical way for any individual to start from. Um, of course, this would probably be a foundational work for anybody maybe in a graduate program or those who don't spend the majority of their time in traditional data related roles, but I could totally see this being something for senior leaders, you know, as well. I think you titled it appropriately. And uh, that phrase, I'm not a data person, really does come up quite a bit. So I'm curious about, though, what you're really trying to do is arm people with uh, confidence and uh, muscle to support 
informed decision making, right? Data informed decision making. It sounds like you interviewed a lot of folks and you tried to under, unpack exactly how that how this um, problem shows up in their lives. And I'm I'm just wondering if you can share what you have observed to be the most challenging part of decision making relative mm-hmm. to data. Yes. And I think maybe one thing to point out is that when I first wrote the proposal for the book, I didn't include the idea to interview 40 people. What happened was that I thought I had gathered enough. I thought I knew enough, you know, already. I said, I can write this book, you know, right now, sit down and start writing. And there continued to be gaps like, okay, how would this actually play out on a community college campus? Or what would a president have to say about this as as opposed to a faculty member? And so the additional 40 interviews was really just to keep myself honest and say, maybe I didn't uh, forget something. And so to answer your question, one theme that came up quite often in those interviews and everybody else I talked with, with is really the sequencing of what to do first. And so what you could have is a strategic plan. And we say, we want to prioritize these 10 things. What oftentimes comes up is, well, give me the data to show that these are the right 10 things. And so you get that. And then you say, well, which one do we do first? You know, which one do we do second? Do we have enough to go from one to two? And so sequencing using data is oftentimes one of the biggest things. The other one is to know when you have enough data to make a decision. You know, sometimes that idea that you have to have 100% certainty to make your next move is not always a luxury that we have. And so if it's not sequencing is going to be the timing of things. And then I'd say the third would probably be the pace, how fast we work. And throughout this whole thing, I think we're talking about um, the analytics revolution. So shameless plug for the book that uh, I did with a couple colleagues a couple years before that, talking about big data and this revolution and that data is going to be throughout everything we're working on. So it could be very, very fast paced, this urgent need to have everything right now. So I say those big three challenges all do roll up into a very, very difficult environment, one in which many people would become overwhelmed and say, I'm not a data person. But the book is designed to say, if we slow down a little bit, we have a tactical approach, we got the sequencing together, we got the timing and the frame together, and we do it collaboratively, these types of challenges are actually manageable. That's wonderful to hear. And I think that uh, we have come to find that uh, with our most recent project here at the UIA, the Black Student Success Initiative, how important it is to really think intentionally about what order you are carrying out some of the work, right? Because you really help yourself out thinking, being forward thinking, excuse me, before you start stepping into some of these things, because, you know, you start to uncover, like you said, you start to uncover things, right, as you go through the process. And so understanding it beforehand certainly could be helpful. I I wonder, um, just turning the corner a little bit here. What is the number one question you get related to data? What What is it that people come and ask you most often? And I think I'm, I'm going to probably step in it a little bit when I say this, but the most popular question is, which is better, quantitative or qualitative? And I always say the same thing. We need both. And so you'd be surprised the number of people in the field who would um, say that quantitative is better. You know, you can do all types of algorithms, all types of fancy analyses, and you need those. But you can be just as sophisticated with qualitative as well. You know, um, at the basis of of every conversation, you're going to have to have some data to inform your decision. Um, But I would be remiss if I didn't say I, I, I really like both. And mixed methods is my favorite type of work to do. You need to know the how, you need to know the condition, and you need to know the what. But you would be surprised. The number of doc students who come to me and say, I'm trying to do my dissertation studies. Should I go quant or qual? You know, and it's and it plays out the same way on college campuses. Do we need to use surveys or do we need to do focus groups? And so we won't ever get around it, but it's definitely the most popular question. That is something that feels very close to home. We have a comment coming in from Stacy. Hi, oh, good to see you. <laughs> um, so it's uh, folks that have questions for uh, Dr. Parnell. We're happy to entertain them in the chat. Uh, we definitely noticed that with, um, as Stephanie mentioned, with the Black Student Success Initiative, the thing that that showed me was um, just how much of a bias we have towards quantitative data because it feels mm-hmm. clean, it feels tidy, and we can, um, you know, just it feels more clear. Whereas the ambiguity of qualitative 
quantitative data is something that we're a bit more uncomfortable with. And so I think we are um, inclined to, to just focus on what we think is like the easy, tidy data. And the problem is that when we're talking about the lived experience of students, especially around racial identity, it, there is just, there's no way that quantitative data can really reflect that. So been a um, path that we, uh, our campuses are definitely walking down um, in terms of how to not just make that a once in a while kind of thing, but actually like an integrated part of, of your diet as an institution that you are on a consistent basis consuming um, and surfacing insights in a qualitative way. So totally appreciate that. I did want to ask about your advice that you have for scholars. So we all have read a lot of um, scholarship that is fantastic. Don't stop producing scholarship scholars. This is not, this is not hostile. It would be so helpful if it was a bit more conversational and relatable for people who do not live in the world of scholarship. I assume that is what part of your guidance, but I'm wondering if you have any practical advice on how they actually can implement that. Yeah, I think it starts with the conversation. I said early, almost every question comes back to strategic communication. I think um, we need more scholarship. I, I hope that we continue to see that. I think um, I went through the same thing. I started right off with the pen and paper. I said, I'm about to write this book. And at some point I said, I have to bring in the perspectives and voices of those who are actually doing the work, the practitioners who are engaged in this every day. And it wasn't so much to get additional credibility so much as it was to say, I didn't want to write something that didn't have the right placement of today's issues and today's times. And I think one extra way to to ensure that that happens is to talk with people and share some of the stuff that you're working on. I know it's tempting to say, well, I'll just wait until my journal article is completely done and then it gets published and released. But that might take a couple of years. At some point along the way, even when you're gathering your data, I think um, having some iterative times that you can actually connect with somebody who's actually more front facing with students will help us make our work a little bit more relevant and timely. So I know that that happens already. And I know that anybody listening to that would say, of course, Amelia, I do that. But I think there's never a, a bad time to continue doing that. So if you find yourself going months at a time, really, really deep in your writing, and you haven't had a moment to step back and talk with somebody who's been working in the field, um, I think that's probably a nudge that we can all remember to some degree. So I'm already thinking about, you know, the second edition, how I can bring in some other other voices, one of which would probably be students for, for my next thing. So that actually um, makes me wonder what kind of training and education is needed in the field um, to kind of support people as they continue moving forward and trying to implement while being data people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just got to transition to students. Um, so just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I was I, totally the same question because I'm thinking like, I mean, I don't know if there is a training, honestly, yeah. uh, but I, especially when you're recommending strategic communications, mm-hmm. do we train people and teach them how to do that? I don't know. I mean, a lot of it happens on the fly. We learn a lot from the things that don't go well, but surely there's a smoother way so that you won't have all these bumps and bruises as your best lessons you know, learned here. I think that the, the benefit of this is that, again, if you look at the appendix of the book, I took about four completely different jobs and I listed out what all the key criteria were for people who were going to apply. And some of them said knowledge of trends. Some of them said the ability to communicate across audiences, the ability to look at data and make decisions. And so it doesn't really, really matter what your title of your role is. These are skill sets that we're going to continually have to refine. And so the goal of the book is not to be a one-time read. It's intended to be something evergreen. So for example, let's say I'm working at the University Innovation Alliance and I, I want to take a look at that book and maybe my campus context is strong. If I change jobs and then go work at at Wilberforce University, I don't know anything about that campus. And so now my campus context level is very low. And so it's not really a situation where you'd have one seminal work that you would look at and say, once I master this, then I'm 
totally ready for anything that awaits me in terms of data. But instead, I think it's an ongoing commitment to building those skill sets. So um, those who are communications professionals, they would probably say, yeah, I got that part together, but maybe they haven't spent as much time learning about the campus ins and outs, operations, or even their research uh, chops. So I think the goal here is to convince the reader that they would have a lifelong commitment to building out a set of skills that that will be evergreen for them. And for the places where they don't know how to do something exceptionally well, make a new connection. And so using your example, like where does someone get really good experience in learning how to do campus communications? They're probably not going back to school to get a master's degree in communications, but I bet they could have a coffee with somebody who's over communications at the campus or the person who's over communications could do a a little bit of a lunch and learn where we can kind of pick up some skill sets from each other. So one of the tips in the book about how to build your skill set is to find a partner. And it could be a data partner, it could be a communications partner, it could be a strategic partner. But the idea is that sharing what you know, um, the places that I have a little bit more to do, I can probably build on that while we're talking with Tiffany and vice versa. So it builds a bit of a culture and a climate of sharing, not just data, but what you know in other areas as well. And so related to that, how do we um, make some of this scholarship and and kind of integrating the training and the conversations that we need to have? How do we make this more actionable and accessible uh, to people who maybe don't have the formal training or maybe are further away from the formal training than um, some of our newer colleagues, right, entering the field, newer professionals? Uh, How do we bring some of these oftentimes high level concepts down to the ground to make them uh, be able to, you know, improve the outcomes that we want to see? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, we, we do a lot of this stuff already. You know, I think I hear one of the best ideas that excites me still is the the campus conference. You know, we spend a lot of time, I work at an association that delivers a lot of conferences, um, but they do a, a lot of university day where you would have colleagues who do daily work coming and sharing with each other without having to actually leave the campus. And you can learn a lot from each other by sharing what you already do. We also need platforms like this one, stuff that's freely and openly available that people can listen to in their leisure and come back to and take notes and things like that. Uh, we need more scholarship. But of course, some of that is behind paywalls and things of that sort. But there's a lot more that you can see out now in terms of blogs and papers that are publicly available. So it doesn't replace formal training. And again, I want to be clear that this is not to suggest that this, if you get this book, then you can skip a whole lot of training. We need all of that. But if you're somebody who says, I'm just getting started with it, I'm kind of interested, I don't want to overwhelm myself, you know, we, we need a collection of resources. And so I hope this book really just kind of ignites an interest. And then right after that, you pair up with somebody and say, hey, I took this self-assessment. Here's what I got. What do you have? Let's talk about it. What do you do on your daily work? Can I see some of those reports you've been working on? And it really starts the conversation. At that point, as you want to build more, you start swapping and sharing some books. And after that, then you go to a conference together or you present together. And so it's truly a developmental process over time, not to be a quick one, but a book that you would come back to over and over again. So it's a very quick read. It should be easy. It should be relatable, practical. And these quotes throughout should make it a little bit inspiring. So I think that's the first step. And plus, we need more scholarship to practice episodes too from you. Well, thanks for the plug. I think first, it sounds like anyone who is listening, if you're an administrator and you are working with someone who you have heard them defer on a decision or respond to something and say, oh, I'm not a data person. This is the this makes the perfect holiday gift. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> this is this is a something that we we would recommend passing around the office, I assume. But the other piece I, I did want to share have you share a bit more about your background before we conclude the show because when we were um, leading up to this conversation, you've really been everywhere in higher ed. You have um, had a a deep experience in terms of various spaces in the field and vantage points um, to support this work. So I was just wondering if you could walk us through a little bit more about your background and what experiences have led to you being at this point where you write this book. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to go back to just maybe the point that, that pushed me in the direction of higher education, because I can go back even further than that and say that in the beginning, when I was charting my, my course, I never really anticipated working in higher education. My plan was to go straight to corporate America. Um, but I found myself uh, along the way having a couple really, really impactful opportunities that persuaded me that this was the place I should be. And one of those was working at my alma mater, Florida A&M University, in the Office of Internal Audit. And that was when I got to see behind the scenes how a campus was going to be working. And I had so many questions, and that pushed me to start studying in, in a formal capacity through my doc work. And at that same time, I was doing this legislative policy analysis work, and I started to see how systems work together and how legislation impacts the rules that are set and how those rules play out on campuses. And I started to, again, become more energized around who has the information that they need, how does that get explained, um, you know, finish the doc work, and then up, you know, spending some time as, a, as an adjunct instructor and teaching in the evenings, masters and doc students in the area of higher education. And they had all these questions like, well, you know, how does this fit together? How does this play out in, in, in real space? And what impact could I have? And so I found myself um, giving them advice about how to make an impact at the same time that I wanted to make an impact as well. And then I got introduced to association work and realized that the macro level conversations that I didn't even know that I wanted started to play out a whole lot more in real time. And so I started to see how data access for a big school versus a small school school, key questions about student progress relate to black students versus military connected students. And there was like, it was like putting somebody who loves ice cream in, a, in an ice cream store. I, like, I, there was, I just could not find a moment where I didn't have all types of questions that revolved around the use of data. So it was policy. It was a little bit practice. It was a little bit teaching, a little bit of learning. It was a little bit of operational stuff. And then by the time I landed at NASPA, it all started to kind of come together. So the policy stuff in my portfolio kind of came back around student affairs all day, every day, which is what I studied, uh, research as I have opportunities to do so. And then opportunities to connect and engage with, you know, professionals across the country at, at all levels. And so it just really excites me. So in the bigger scheme of things, it all comes back down to a certain passion that I have, which is to make the things that seem inaccessible more accessible. So the podcast that I do, it's really for an everyday audience. It's for people who don't know anything about higher ed. I don't see a reason why all of this stuff has to be as confusing as sometimes it seems. Not to say I'm going to be the only person to help make it a little bit more palatable, but if I can, I enjoy it. I think at the core, I naturally like to see people's faces like up and they're like, oh, that actually is kind of cool. Oh, I didn't think that would be the case. And so it, it sparks an interest in me throughout my career. You know, I've, I've been part practitioner, part researcher, part, part policy person, part friend, part connector, and just general conversationalist and scholar when I see opportunities to do so. So I don't know when the next written piece will come around, but if it's a couple of years from now, I'll know because I will have had more conversations like this and more questions that are out there. So my story career is just one of which I like meeting new people. I like finding gaps that haven't been explored and I like telling a good story. And so um, weaving all that together gave me a great opportunity to write this book. And I have been overwhelmed with gratitude for the positive reception. I just checked and we got almost a thousand copies sold. So that's since September. So for the, the thousand people out there who got the book, I hope <laughs> they agree that they like it. And um, I hope to do something more uh, again in the future. That's great. We actually have a, get, a question coming from our audience on LinkedIn. Brian Dixon asked, uh, I think one of the challenges we see is leveraging the most effective ways to share data up to senior leadership in an accessible way without losing meaningful context. And he's wondering if you have any tips. That is a really good question. And it is yeah. a challenge I think we see across the board. Um, yeah. How do you brief your boss in a way that they are actually smart about the data, but you can actually keep their attention? Absolutely. Uh, it, it comes back to, I think, two pieces of the, the framework. The first is 
curiosity and inquiry. So that that senior leader who is asking, I think having a, a clear as, as clear possible understanding of what that initial question is. That way, when they say, I'm curious about the number of transfer students who come to our campus from 500 miles away, maybe probe a little bit more and say, if you had that answer, what would you want to do with it? That way you save yourself from wasting the time of going in a direction that might not yield what they were hoping for. So spend a little bit more time asking that senior leader exactly what they want to know from that initial set of questions. And then you can put yourself on a right plan to, to delve into it in a way that maximizes your use of limited resources likely. I think after that, once you get to the quick answers to that, keep it brief, you know, maybe give it like three or four bullet points. This is from my policy work. Most representatives and senators, they don't have time to read a whole report at one time. But if you give them a short memo, that could give them enough information for them to start working on. So my, my top two tips would be make sure the scope of your question is as succinct and clear as possible. And then from there, once you get some answers, um, try to be as brief as you can and leave the door open for future conversation. Great question, Brian. That is great. That's a perfect question. Um, the clarifying question around scope and being as brief as possible. I also um, encourage people to think of the framing of you're in an elevator and mm -hmm. how, how would you say this to a person on the street that you yep. were needing to explain it and you had, it was time limited. Um, sometimes that helps. I also think, you know, what we know, no matter the leader, what I found is that they, they relate most to story. They need that framing because often they are being asked to tell stories. Um, and so they're trying to think through the context and the story framework of, you know, to some degree, there's heroes and villains. Uh, it's a, that's an oversimplification, but sometimes it's helpful. But they are also trying to think from the 360 perspective of like, what are the risks? What are the opportunities, the threats, et cetera? Um, so as much as you can do that thinking for them um, mm -hmm. in advance, that's really helpful. But I love the idea of the clarifying question because too many people don't do that. And they say, when you hear from your boss, I want X. Okay, we just go off and act. We, we get the tattoo of X. And instead of, okay, but by when and exactly when you, like what part of that do you actually need? And then for what purpose? So, well, I hope that's been useful to you all. And it's been certainly valuable for us to have Dr. Parnell on stage here today to share with us her perspective. Thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of Scholarship to Practice. And Amelia, we really appreciate you spending your time with us. Thank you very much for having me. For those of you watching at home, thank you as well. So uh, we can't wait to bring you more conversations that bridge the gap between scholarship and practice. Um, and so we can do our best to support students and our sector. Um, if you'd like to nominate a scholar or uh, a topic for a future episode on scholarship practice, both Tiffany and I's DMs are open on Twitter, and that is the most uh, the easiest way for us to connect. So we hope to hear from you um, in the near future, and we look forward to bringing future episodes to you.